Enablement is one of those things that everybody knows it's a good thing. I used to have hair before I went into enablement. If you don't change something, then you can't expect that the results are going to change. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Sales. You've all heard of sales enablement, but how do you tackle it properly and how do you structure it for your business? I have a conversation with Al Graves and we're going to tell you all about this. For the people that don't know who you are, um, can you explain how your young daughter would explain what daddy does for a living? Oh, now that is a really interesting question. I'll have to ask her um, one day. She would probably say, she'd probably say that I, I work, I work too much. That's probably what she would say um, because it, it interferes with her playtime. Um, yeah, but I guess you know, you're talking about sales, right? So I think anybody that's involved in sales in any respect is going to recognize the, that to be good at what you do, it's not nine to five and it never will be. And anybody that goes into sales thinking that it's going to be a nine to five job, they're never going to excel really in what in what they do. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so uh what would your other daughter say that you do for a living? <laughs> we need something. <laughs> you need to, you need to. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, they, um, they know that um, what I do is all about helping salespeople become better at what they do. That's effectively, mm-hmm. and I think that's what I, how I sum, sum up what I do. You know, people talk about enablement and they say, what is enablement? And for yeah. me, it's all about making sure that salespeople have got everything that they need to be as successful as, as they can, they can do. So I think my daughters uh, will, will have heard me say that more, more yeah. times, um, that that's what I do is just help salespeople do better at what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're. You're a pro in sales enablement, if I can say it like that. I, I remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I first saw you, I have to tell this, um, was on a Showpad event in London. Um, and I was sitting in the crowd and you were doing a talk, I think at the time you were at Exponia. Um, and I was like baffled by the way you could bring across your message. And I was like, whatever this guy would sell me, I would buy it just from listening <laughs> to you. <laughs> Excellent. Let me add you on a on a list for a call later this week. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so you you're essentially you're you're in sales enablement. Um, it's um it, it's sometimes used as a very broad term. I think you will agree that sometimes people that are just training sales reps are seen as enablement, uh, and otherwise in some companies it's people that make sure they are on the right tech stack. Um, what would you what would you use as a definition for your position in sales enablement? Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good one because um, sales enablement is one of those terms that's that's developed over the years. It, it's become, I suppose, over the last few years, it's become more trendy. Um, mm-hmm. But it, but it, I think it, it evolved from sales training, right? I think a lot of organisations um, wanted to have their sales teams trained. And they wanted coaches um, and sales managers and sales leaders often don't have the time to train and, and to coach um, their own staff, you know, even with all the best intentions in the world, you know, everything yeah. takes over and it becomes the last thing that people want to do. So a lot of organizations got to the point where they would um, 
they, they would invest in bringing sales trainers in, external people, but ultimately you bring an external person in, they don't know your business, they don't know your team, they don't know your market. And regardless of how much they can do to, um, to learn about it, they're never going to learn about it to be really credible enough to deliver a compelling message to you, to your sales team. So then people started looking at it and thinking, well, maybe we need to bring out, have somebody internally as a trainer and a coach who's our own person, who can grow with the business. They can develop our own, our own people. Um, and I think that's where it, that's where it came from is that, you know, but to get a good enablement person or a good trainer, Come, to come in they need to be somebody that's been there they've walked the walk they've talked the talk as a salesperson and they've got experience but how you know to get a good salesperson um, who's actually really good at their job to quit mm -hmm. a quota carrying role to become a trainer is a tough job you're gonna have to compensate them right you're gonna have to pay them as well as you would have to pay um them if they were if they were a salesperson and a lot of companies thought well, we can't justify paying that amount of money just for a trainer or a coach so let's look at what other things we can get them involved in to help get that generate that return for this great salary we're going to have to pay this person to get them to be uh, come in and train our staff and that's where it evolved into um, looking at performance you know looking at the right tools developing the right tools making sure salespeople have got all the right content they've got the right sales decks they're talking the right talk their position the positioning the value propositions right they've got all the content the one pages the case studies success stories and being that link with all the other parts of the business to make sure that they have everything that they need so that's where i think it evolved from being we need a good person we have to pay them well what else can we get them to do that's going to bring value and give us that return yeah indeed so you're, you're the shackle between everything that's happening within the sales organization. And does it also involve close relation then with marketing department um, and, and making sure everything is aligned? Yeah, I mean, sales enablement, I think that's that's the conduit that you know, within between sales and pretty much every other department within the business. You know, my role at the moment, I have a very, very strong relationships with marketing. Um, and that involves product marketing. I've got very strong relationships with the product team because we need to make sure that the sales teams are educated enough on, on the product and actually what the product does. Um, I'm the conduit to the legal team to make sure that you know they have everything that they need and they're un they understand all about compliance, security, or the legal aspects, um, aspects of it. This is the content team as well, making sure they've got the right, uh, got the right content. Um, between the customer success team as well to help that transition. So if you think about, you know, all different departments within an organization, sales enablement is the uh, is the function that draws it all together and makes sure that we, we're, we're taking all the right knowledge from all the all the right parts of the business and feeding it to the sales team to make sure that they're best prepared to do what they need to what they need to do. But often yeah. it's pushing it back as well, right? Because the salespeople are the ones that are on the front front lines they're the ones talking to customers so we need to make sure that we're pushing that knowledge and that information back to the right teams so that they're learning from it as well yeah indeed and um i can imagine that sometimes you're a little bit squeezed between all the things and and do you notice that people give you like that they push back on you yeah you know what um enablement is one of those things that everybody knows it's a good thing 
Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that enablement's important. You know, it's it's absolutely essential to the to the sales function to really get that performing team. But it's often the last in the priority yeah. list for everybody, right? They know that they need to have it, but it's just like, yeah, I've got something else, and you'll you'll get meetings pushed back quite often because something's yeah. come up. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna have to push that meeting. But everybody knows it's a priority. But it's just making sure that you know, we're educating people and and often being quite assertive and sort of saying, look, you know, we've got these objectives. This is what we're trying to achieve. I know you're busy. Mm-hmm. We need to make time for this. So they 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 know you're gonna give them a hard time sometimes. So uh-huh. <laughs> they're like, yeah. go away. <laughs> I used to have hair before I went into a neighborhood. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> how did you how did you land into enablement? What was your process like? Because you you have years of experience in sales. What when did you start in sales? Like, what was it like to go through the whole journey and now sitting at yeah the the knots, so to say. Yeah, it's it, it, it's interesting, right? Because um, it's very cliche in the sense that I never that I fell into sales. You know, everybody, mm-hmm. pretty much everybody says, "Oh, I fell into sales." Yeah, um, and it's true, right? I left university and I, I got a job in in, in recruitment. And anybody that knows recruitment knows that it is an incredibly tough sales job, right? Because you're selling to customers to try and get them to give you, uh, to, to work with you. But you're also selling to candidates to try and get them to take the jobs that you're representing your customers for, right? And it's a, it was very old school sales mentality, um, proper, hard, cold calling, um, you know, looking through, you know, before the days of internet and everything else, you had a telephone directory and you'd be cold calling yeah. from a telephone directory or going through newspapers, circling companies mm-hmm. with telephone numbers in there that you could actually target. You know, so that's, that was where I, um, the hard where I started from. <laughs> yeah. You know, and well, even before that, you know, I was knocking on doors. My very first sales job, I was knocking on doors, selling windows, double glazing. Like it was when I was at university, part-time job. Um, 6 p.m. till 9 p.m. at night, walking around the streets, knocking on doors, trying to convince people to buy double glazing windows. Um, and uh, I, I have to think about this series that was on Netflix. I forgot how it gold, gold hands of gold or golden hands with double windows. They were also windows. Uh, I've, not, I've not seen that. Yeah. So funny. But it is, yeah. I mean, so my early, early sales career, I mean, it was the proper hard sales um you know proper old school as we would uh, as old folk would uh w- would say and you know i think you either love sales or you hate it i loved yeah. it um and did quite well and you know even knocking on doors selling double glazing i was i was promoted within within a few months to be a team leader um even with recruitment within six months promoting to promoted to managing my own office you know and i was only in my yes. late 20s um at that point but it's very yeah it's a, it's a hard job and I got to a point after a number of years that I I just had enough and I, I just had to have a bit of a break. Mm-hmm. So I ended up um, getting out and going completely, uh, doing something completely out of my comfort zone. And I ended up in Honduras in Latin America and I set up a school out there. Um, awesome. I started volunteering in a school and thought, you know what, I, I we can do better than this. So I ended up setting up a school uh, um, for kids, for underprivileged kids. And um, 
I just loved it. It was absolutely, yeah, it was three years out there and it was just an incredible experience to, mm. to do, but you know, it doesn't last a lifetime. And I knew that I had to come back to reality and uh, come back to the UK. But then there was the question of, um, you know, what do I do now that you know, I've had these three incredible years doing something completely different? Do I go back into recruitment? Do I go back into sales? Um, I don't want to be a teacher because that's not really that's not yeah. what I really want to do in life. But I actually enjoyed the whole teaching side of things. And one of my friends said, "Well, like, why don't you combine you know that uh, that kind of school education side with your ambition and passion in sales, and you know do some sales training, coaching, that kind of thing." Yeah. Um, and that's what I did, um, and and loved it. But I uh, I got to a point where I being the ambitious person that I was, I, I didn't want to continue working for um, for somebody for somebody all my life. And so I went out by myself as a training consultant and a coach, yeah. worked for myself for eight years doing that. And um, the where the back to your question about how it evolved into enablement was I started off just delivering training courses and coaching for people. But then I found that a lot of customers would come to me and I'd have a director or a managing director come to me and say, look, Al, we need you to, I want you to come and deliver a training course to my sales team. And I want you to deliver a training course on, you know, whatever it is, maybe uh, account planning or objection handling or something mm -hmm. like that. My, and after a while, I started to learn that often people's perception of what they thought was the problem isn't actually the problem. And you'd get a sales director that would say, look, I need you to come in and train my team because they're absolutely crap at whatever it is. Can you come mm -hmm. and deliver a training course for them? And as I start to look and dig into it, I would often find that, well, actually, you know what? The problem isn't in training. The problem is actually the way they're being managed right now because these systems, these processes that you've got in place or actually the managers that you've got in place, they're just not doing a very good job. And if you change this and if you change that, then you probably don't need to do any training at all because you just have to make a few few changes. And because I started to become a little bit more consultative in that sense, rather than me just delivering training, I was doing a lot more with organizations in starting to look at what, other than just training, what else can I do? What How else can I support you to make your salespeople more, more effective? Yeah. And it wasn't until late, you know, many years later on when this whole term sales enablement appeared um, that I thought, well, you know what? I've actually been doing sales enablement even before sales enablement was a thing. The whole definition of what it was was yeah. absolutely everything that I was doing, but nobody ever called it enablement at that point. Um, and You're that's the original. I, yeah, well, that's right. You, you know, I, I, that's what I say. You know, if I'm talking to people, I say, you know what? I was doing it before it was even a thing. <laughs> <laughs> doing it before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> awesome. And And how do you... How do you find it? Is it because you're now back um, on the payroll? So you move back to that stage. Um, was that a, a conscious decision where you're like, I'm fed up with uh, constantly on the lookout being for new projects? Or was it like an you opportunity know, that came the, across? The, my biggest frustration with working for myself as an external consultant is I never got to see it through to the end and see the results of what mm -hmm. I was doing because they're all short-term things, right? Oh, yes, I have had some customers where I work with them long-term, but, you know, they would. I would go in and I would deliver some training, some coaching, help them put in place a new sales process or help them pull together whatever project it was. So that, but because yeah. they were paying me as an external consultant, you know, they're not going to continue paying me forever. So I would go in and I'd, I'd do the groundwork and then I would hand over to them to do. And I often would never see the result 
of it or what would happen is they wouldn't um, support it or they weren't pushing it through the business when I as soon as I left it would just go down downhill because there was nobody pushing it and managing it yeah. and, and reinforcing it right so then I would get a call back maybe six months later saying can you come in again because you know we, we've and the same problems existed because nobody was reinforcing it um, and those that w that were successful it just got to a point where I was frustrated because I just didn't see the see the success of what mm -hmm. it was. And the only way I can do that is just completely dedicating myself to one organization where I can start do the building of the foundations. I can build it, I can grow it, and I can actually be there to see the success of, of, of what I'm doing. That was the key driving, mm -hmm. uh, driving factor for me, really. Yeah. And I think um, the, the, as you said, the, the definition of sales enablement is something that's fairly new. Mm -hmm. um, how do you keep up currently with the latest trends? Like, have, do you have tips for people that are moving into enablement or, or have this sense of like, yeah, it might be something that ties our marketing, our sales department together. How do you, how do you keep up? What, what would you recommend people to get into it, it? Because it's very, it's a lot. Yeah. You know what it, it is all about? keeping up to date you know it's you know linkedin is an amazing place right for keeping up to date on who's doing what um you know there's so many articles discussions etc mm -hmm. that um that you, that you that you can read and it's always you know it's, it's been a it's been a while since there's um anything been in in person but you know enablement events you know like like like, like that event you were talking about that where we first met um, yeah. at that show pad event yeah it's fantastic places to just learn what people are doing and just to absorb what uh, what people are doing and i think that's just a really crucial crucial part of it is just building a network of enable enablement people and you know you'll always find i've never met a, an enablement person yet that is really um closed or protective over what they're over what they're doing you know you find in some situations particularly in sales, people don't want to tell other people what 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 they're doing that's working so well but in enablement i've never seen that everybody's so happy to share what they're doing and, and the successes and what's worked and what's not worked um mm -hmm. so yeah you're networking reading lots about articles and anything that people are doing is really important yeah yeah for sure and um is it is it um, like from from so maturity in a company you could there there must be a tipping point where it makes sense to dive into that or do you think like a lot of companies are waiting too long to jump into enablement and they could or they may be already actually doing stuff but on an unstructured way where um, if they would be a little bit more conscious about what they're doing they could maybe shorten their processes they're going to market they're yeah everything basically yeah. yeah it's a good question i you know my passion is um the fast growing SaaS startup scale up businesses mm -hmm. um yeah i i think i i thrive in in those in those kind of environments and they're a very typical example of is very chicken and egg situation in that you know a lot of organizations a lot of SaaS startups, you know, they look at it and they think, yeah, we we really want enablement, but we, we can't really afford or we don't really want to justify um, an enablement person yet because we've got such a small such a small team. Well, you know, my advice is always that you know 
it's best to start putting enablement in place in the early days while you've got a small team because it's easier than to scale. You know, you've got everything that you need. You, you, you've got the structure. Um, you've got the knowledge base. You've got all the onboarding. You've got the continual development. You've got the tools all, all in place so that it, you, you're in a much better position, position to grow quicker and to grow successfully um, a lot quicker rather than it, what tends to happen is, you know, it, it gets to be when sales teams are about 30 strong um, and then they realize, crap, we need to get somebody to come and help uh, help support in this enablement in enablement role and then you it's it's that scenario of flying the plane whilst building it uh particularly when they're on that upward trajectory of of, of hyper growth because yeah. they're growing massively they're bringing on more and more new people all the time but you're still trying to put things in place at the same time whereas actually if they'd invested a lot earlier on and put the structure in place earlier on then that whole hyper growth mode that they're now finding themselves in will be much easier because you've got everything in place already rather than trying to build it as you're as you're going along yeah and what, what would be the core elements you would say um, within that framework, because you, you talk about tools, I, you said the word tools, um, is that, is that putting in place even a learning management system and all that sort of stuff, even when you're still small or which tools would you think like these are really crucial in, at any stage and they, of course they can evolve, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, one of the, one of the big ones really is, um, about content management. You know, it's, you know, because to be, to grow quickly, you, you're going to have to have a, a good BDR team, SDR team, and they rely on having content to share, you know, the one pages, mm -hmm. the case studies, the success stories, um, to be able to share, uh, with, with prospects and just to nurture those leads through the whole, through the whole process. If you've not got content, if you've not got regular up-to-date content, if you've not got content, if you've not continually got a uh, new content that you can share and, and help the process along with, then they, they, they're going to struggle. Um, but, you know, having a platform where it almost, you know, I've put in place platforms where um, it will almost recommend content depending on what, st what stage you're at in the sales, sales mm -hmm. process. You know, I'm putting in a, a platform at the moment uh, that is it's a fantastic tool in the sense that it integrates with, um, with Salesforce, which is our CRM system and depending on the um, on the stage that they're in depending on the persona that they're speaking to depending on the vertical and the market that they're operating in it will actually recommend content it will say okay you're in the uh, you're in the discovery stage you're talking to an IT manager persona and you're within you're targeting an organization within you know the maritime industry uh, we recommend these are the pieces of content that you need to share um, and it's based on past success or the impact that that content has had pre on previous deals and moving deals through. Yeah, I think getting so, getting things like that in place early early on, um, yeah, it's a it's a big investment, but you're setting yourself up for success because you're built. They, they're more successful um, the more you use them, and uh, mm -hmm. it kind of gathers insight as to how people are engaging and and what content people are using. So it just becomes a lot easier to to scale that kind of that kind of situation yeah if you have all the content of course i see a lot of companies that wait quite long uh to produce content or valuable content yeah 
and, and that's that's the challenge, right? Again, it's it's all chicken. There's so many chicken and egg situations, you know. And if you if you wait until you've got loads of content, then the whole job and the whole process of putting in place a platform like that becomes a lot more difficult, and it's a lot more challenging because then you've got to look at all your content and you've got to upload all your content. You've got to think about tagging it. You know, it, it's it just makes it more difficult. And you're right, there's a balance. Um, because not everybody that's got three salespeople are going to go out and make an investment in a big tool if they've only got five pieces of five pieces of content. Yeah, so it's always balancing. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And um, how do you notice that, um, or how do you find that salespeople are um, welcoming sales enablement? Because I can imagine they're a little bit skeptic about some parts of like all the salespeople I know are very egocentric, like they have an ego. They're like, <laughs> yeah, don't tell me what to do. Um, how do you tackle that? Is, is that something that you have to tackle currently at the company you're at or that you have had in the past? You know, I've, 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 I think I've been quite blessed in that sense. And there's, there's very mm -hmm. few people um, that I've come across recently that don't have that recognition that, you know, I could do better at what I'm doing and, and, any any support and help that I can get is going to help me. Therefore, it, it's better um, for me. Um, I think that's one of the advantages of enablement as a role as a whole is that it's not just talking about training and coaching, right? Um, it's the it's the whole it's the whole package, you know. And I think I am very keen on looking at, at, at skills and competencies and those kind of frameworks, which actually look at individual. Um, individual people and you know assesses where are their skills and weaknesses and rather than just pushing out a piece of training that everybody has to go through regardless we can actually target it and we can say okay you know these five people are all struggling in this one key competency yeah. um therefore let's pull together a program for these five people and make it very focused on these five people and you know the other 20 people um they're doing okay so let's not waste their time in, in dragging them into having to mm -hmm. attend this training because you're right they're, they're going to be sitting there thinking well why am i sat here I, I i don't need to i don't need to be here and i'm a salesperson i want to be on the phone i want to be talking to my customers etc but yeah sales it's full of um full of egos to a point um, you know, and, and they have to have that confidence to, to be, to be successful. But I think one of the good traits of a good salesperson who will be successful is the salesperson that recognizes that then they don't know everything they can still learn. Um, there's still a lot more that they can get out of, of other people that are there to support them, to make them, make them better. It would always be a big red flag for me um people sales people that think they're the finished article yeah indeed that's true but you 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 come across that type of sales people very often i find <laughs> often often the time the the most common times that you find across you find those kind of sales people is when you're interviewing them because they're looking for another job right yep yeah true and then you ask yourself well why why are they looking for another job well there you go <laughs> that, that could be a could be an answer in itself another thing is keeping finger on the pulse, um, like how do you, how do you tap into that? Do you use technology to make sure that the performance is being measured, that you can spot gaps even before they know there are gaps, or is that more in like a one-on-one -on -one basis that you, that you keep in check with the team? A lot of it. I mean, certainly, certainly within the size of organizations that I'm working with, I mean, 
Yeah, I, I was at AWS previously. That's a, just a completely different ball game because it's so so huge. Um, but within you know, the startup scale up world, you know, it, the the companies are small enough to be able to keep your fingers on the pulse just by having those relationships with people. Um, you know, looking at those key competencies. Um, I do a lot of listening of calls. You know, we we record all of our calls, so you know, I'll often spend time just listening to people's calls um, and, and just hearing. How, how they're approaching things and having conversations and just building those relationships with people is just absolutely key. I'm, 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 if I think about myself, how would I react if somebody came in and said, I listened to your call and A, B and C wasn't all right. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I, I, would be, I would be the person to like that. But <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those um, things nobody likes. Nobody likes the idea that, that anybody's, um, anybody's listening, listening into them. But I think it's a it's a culture thing. I think it needs to be something that you know, that salespeople just learn to accept, and it's part of the part of the process. But you know, the way that we we look at it, where I am currently, is it's not all about yeah. You know, we don't record calls because we want to pull people up on where they're where they're making mistakes. We record it so we can share best practice, you know, so that we can when when there's a really good call. Uh, we can share it with the rest of the team and say, hey, people, come and have a listen to this call um, because this is a really good example of this situation or, you know, we, where we were coming up against uh, this competitor, this key competitor. Just have a listen to this call and just hear how this salesperson um, tackled that situation and managed that whole call. And, yeah, I think when you start to approach things in the sense that, you know, it, it, it's a... It, it's a situation where you know yes that you you are going to highlight certain things that didn't go well but mm -hmm. you can get a lot more value out of doing it in a completely different way of saying look here's an example of what's good here's best practice have a listen to um to these calls and approaching it in that way you know people will always recognize you know if they see a really good call they will always recognize what they don't do and what's missing from their call. So you don't yeah. often need to tell them. You just get them to listen to it and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I don't do that. Or, you know, it, or they'll hear somebody else's call and someone else will say something that was really bad and they'll recognize it and think, oh, crap, I say that on my calls and that sounds so bad. I'm never going to say that again. So you, you, if you're clever about it, you don't need to pull people up a lot of times. True. True. What's one of the number one mistakes you can think of that you heard on one of the calls? Um, not, not signposting the call, you know, not, yeah, I think one of the things that people tend, what tends to happen is, you know, you have a 45 minute call booked and if you don't plan the call, if you don't set out your agenda, if you don't set out your expectations, what you want to cover, if you don't check, you know, at, at the, before you start, you know, if, if it's a 45 minute meeting, just confirm, say, look, I, I know we've got 45 minutes um, planned. Mm -hmm. Just want to check, are you, are you happy? Are you still happy with 45 minutes? Have you got a, have you got an absolute dead stop at, at the end of 45 minutes? Or have you got a little mm -hmm. bit of extra time or and signposting what you're expecting to get out of the call? Because otherwise what happens is you end up at 40 minutes 
and then you realize you've not yeah. achieved everything you want to and then you're rushing the last five minutes and then you get to 45 minutes and the customer says oh look i'm really sorry I've got to jump i've got another call and you haven't even yeah. had a chance to clarify what the next steps are going to be and get any commitment for the next steps and then you try to do it by email and doing it by email after the call has happened is always going to be more challenging. So you need to make sure that you're giving yourself those 10, 15 minutes at the end to wrap things up, to make sure you're getting commitment to the next steps. Because if you don't do it at the end of that call, it's so much more difficult beyond that time. True. I have an aha moment right here. <laughs> <laughs> We've all had those. So I, 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 yeah, I would be lying if I said I hadn't had those calls where I get to the end and I get rushed off by the customer and then think, and then it's literally as soon as the calls ended, that's when you have that moment where you think, damn, I forgot to ask this or I should have yeah. done this. And it always happens the moment you've hung up the call when it's too late. Yeah. yeah or you then try to send an email and then they don't reply immediately. So you're yeah. like cringing away. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely that. Yeah. I have a lot of people that are on LinkedIn um, spreading out what you need to personalize. And some said you don't need to personalize this or that. It depends on who you're targeting, that sort of stuff. Like, what would you advise someone in your team? Um, like, what are the variables in order to decide how much time you should put in an email? Yeah, that is a really difficult question to, to answer, right? Because it is so relative. And there's always, there's just such a huge balance between, you know, do you just smash out a hundred emails and, yeah. you know, re just rely on the law of averages that says, okay, if I send out more emails, then I'm more likely to get a response back because the law of averages says X amount are likely to convert. Or yeah. do you write a lot fewer, excuse me, a lot fewer emails and be really tailored, very specific um, in them? And I, th I think a lot of times it depends on you know, at what stage you're reaching out. You know, if this is totally cold, then um, I think it all depends on how close that individual fits to your ideal customer profile. You know, if you're yeah. looking at this, if you're looking at this opportunity, and everything about them screams this is an opportunity. I've done my I've done a bit of research, or I, I know this company, and and they just they fit. They're definite. Fit and you know they're a fit, then that's a situation you have to spend more time and be a lot more personalized and, and think about mm -hmm. how you're going to how you're going to do it. And I think a lot of it just comes down to how much profiling a, a, an organization does in terms of their ideal customer profile, um, or whether you're just throwing a lot out there and hoping to uh, to, to make some of it work. Yeah, I, I think a lot of a lot of people out there. Um, there's a definition of personalizing, I believe, like what's personalization to you? Is that knowing the name of your dog or the car you drive, or is that <laughs> personalizing about, uh, the company you work for and being relevant on that end? Because there are a lot of nuances and like, yeah, you could tie your product mission to the local football club you're su supporter of, you know what I mean? Like how extreme is personalizing? Well, you know, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about relevance. It's about being relevant. Um, and, and yeah, of course, you know, the more relevant your, your message is uh, or the more relevant or the more relevant um, that you position your yourself and, and what you're trying to say to them, the, the more likely they are 
going to be respond they they're likely to be to respond but i think yeah i mean if you if you look at their LinkedIn <laughs> think about profile, think about emails you receive think about emails you receive like which ones do you reply on and which ones you you ignore yeah i i always i i always reply more to those emails where somebody just has a bit of cheek and they have you know mm -hmm. they they've spotted something you know i um I had I had one guy reach out to me and he uh, I probably shouldn't even admit this on this uh, on this <laughs> but I when I was working for myself I created a series of YouTube videos and I cringe every time I see those videos I just think they're oh, still online yeah no no they're not still <laughs> online what am I doing <laughs> and I um, he made some comment about uh, he just connected out of the blue and he said, I've been watching your YouTube channel. I found them really helpful, um, you know, particularly particularly this one. And he, he made a made a comment. I'm not even going to tell you what the comment was. He made about one of them that just made me sit with my head in my hand. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, I can't even believe this is still on the Internet. And he laughed about it and put a lot at the end. But I mean, it, it caught my attention. Right. It was just totally personalized. Um, but made me cringe like hell thinking I really need to figure out a way to remove these, uh, remove these videos. You lost your password or anything? Yeah, well, I can't, I, I, I don't have access to the email, um, address that I used <laughs> at the time and I can't remember my password and YouTube is just impossible to delete content. Yeah. So it's going to um, be there forever haunting me for the rest of my life. I need to download them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you may learn something. True, true. But um, did you end up buying? Did you take the meeting? Um, I took the meeting, but I've not bought. I've not bought yet. It's still early days. I mean, this only literally happened last week. Um, oh, right. But so, uh, to yeah. anyone listening, trying to sell a product to you? <laughs> yeah, find me on YouTube. No, don't find me on YouTube. <laughs> this does not exist. Um, it's happening, Al. It's but, happening. <laughs> but that's what I mean, right? The, the, um, the, that was personalization. That was totally, yeah. yeah. I, and I don't know whether he... Um, stumbled across my 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 youtube and thought oh, i'm gonna target this guy or whether he legitimately was watching the videos and mm -hmm. you know I, I don't know which way around it was but um to ask. It, it caught my attention <laughs> awesome well that's personalization that that could work uh i believe yeah but the challenge sales people have got this challenge and you know some people are just notoriously difficult to personalize anything because you know mm -hmm. they some people just don't put a lot out there. So if there's not a lot to find out, um, then there's a lot, not a lot to personalize people. And then some times you'll create what you think is the most amazing personalized email. And you think there is not a chance this person is not going to reply to this because this is such a freaking good email. And, and then, then you get nothing at all. And you think, what? How, how has this actually happened? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's it, then you start to think, about the cost of acquisition, the cost of sales, yeah. like what is a good ratio? Because you can personalize 50 emails, get maybe 20 replies. Um, so you're already losing a little bit of time on the 30 emails that you personalize and maybe spend 15 to 30 minutes on it. But if you do that, you only have uh, 16 emails in a day if you spend 30 minutes on them. So yeah, it's, I think, you know, it has to be, you know, it has to be part of a wider, um, outreach approach. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's it's very difficult to rely purely on just cold outreach. Um, yeah, I think building your brand, getting brand awareness, getting putting content out there so people recognize yeah. your product, they recognize your company name, um, getting in front of their face, you know, whether that's through content or targeted campaigns or whether that's you specifically getting in front of people's face through their social media, like LinkedIn, commenting, liking, sharing their posts and things. Yeah, I think all of those combined with a more personalized approach when you do um, when you do reach out to them is likely to be a lot more effective rather than spending lots of time just personalizing lots of emails just in itself purely. I think yeah. that's when you're going to chat, but that's when it's going to be a problem. I think you've got to combine it with a much wider, um, much wider approach. Yeah, it's more like an account-based marketing approach that you're referring to, right? Absolutely, like, yeah. 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 But that that makes the cost even... You've like, got to have it right. Increased. You've got to, yeah. you've, you've got to get ABM right. Um, but I've seen it done right and it works incredibly well. Um, and you know, it, there is always that fear of, you know, to do it well, you've got to spend a lot of money doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's that initial getting over that initial fear until you see the results, because a lot of people don't see the instant results and they go, Oh no. And they panic and they're out of there and mm -hmm. they think I've spent X amount this month. I've not seen anything. Um, I, I can't afford to do this. I don't continue doing this. And you've got, you know, you've got to have the right people running those, uh, those kind of campaigns who know what they're doing. And you've got to mm -hmm. have the, you've got to have the confidence and you've got to stand your ground and think, okay, I'm not going to get an instant result, but it's worth it because I am going to. Yeah. And, and you, I think you need to like be very persistent uh, on that end. And I, I see a lot of salespeople that sometimes get a little bit pushed back in terms of, yeah, you, you still have your quota hanging above your head. Right. Um, and you still need to make that. So on that moment, when you're doing ABM, you also, re I, you also rely on what marketing is doing. You rely on other ends. Um, so I can, I can, yeah. How do you how do you make sure that the the way is the weight is spread across all those channels and and still be able to reach your quota? Because I think if somebody is listening right now and it says, "All right, ABM, yeah, it might be multi-channel approach. Uh, we're going to do this and that." Um, it's not like it's gonna bring you a return on investment overnight. Like this is yeah. a long process. Yeah, it is right, and you, you also need to understand your customers and your prospect base. You know, in mm -hmm. terms of where they are, you know, because there's no point. You know, you can say I'm gonna have this multi-channel approach and just smash across all all channels, but you need to know where where are your customers, where are your prospects, where do they engage, which channel is gonna be the best channel um, for for you. You know, within some industries, you know, they they may do an awful lot on Facebook. Other people won't touch Facebook, uh, and it's purely on LinkedIn. Um, some won't just won't really be active on social media very much at all. And they might have a, a company page or they might have a few staff on LinkedIn, but they're not active on there. So there's absolutely no point um, targeting it in, in that way. So you've got to know you've got to know your customers and your prospect base as to which is going to be the best approach to take, whether it is across multiple channels all at the same time or whether you're just going to focus on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Yeah. That's another tool on your tool list that you need in order to find out 
<laughs> how that is all working out. <laughs> it, I mean, the, the amount of tools available um, it's is, insane. It, it is insane. And you know, we are continually targeted by, I mean, I get emails almost every day or two introduce, wanting to introduce me to a new platform of some sort. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. And it's incredible the, what platforms can do these days. Um, or that's or incredible what people claim platforms can do, right? Um, yeah. And it is, it's just incredibly difficult to know. And sometimes you can pass stuff. I, I've, I'm sure I will have passed um, tools by and they could have been absolutely incredible, but I just didn't, for whatever reason, maybe because of the way, because of the way they outreached or because of the way that I perceive the value. Um, I just disregarded it and it could have been absolutely amazing, but I, I would never know. How do you think the tool landscape will uh, will evolve? Because now sales enablement, I'm not sure how many years it has been that people call it sales enablement. It's already getting new names, I think. Revenue enablement is, the, is a newer term. And then, yeah, it's going to evolve and evolve. Uh, how do you think it will impact uh, sales teams like with new technology and that sort of stuff? Well, I, you know, I think, I think you're right in saying that it's evolved and, you know, revenue enablement or revenue operations and enablement is even more, um, common, common now and just enablement as a title by itself, you know, not even just revenue. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of organizations have had, and I've had it before where, you know, you put enablement, uh, um, projects in place you put different processes or you ha have you do something new from an enablement perspective for sales and it's mm -hmm. often the case where you'll get other departments saying oh this is actually really really cool can we um can we do this within our within our team it's nothing to do with sales but they just yeah. see what you're putting into place and what you're starting to build and they think oh we really really would love to have something like that for our team so then it starts to it starts to evolve and that's how you end up finding this whole approach to sales enablement suddenly becomes revenue enablement or just enablement as a whole because other parts of the business want to uh, want to take take value from it and i think in terms of tools um what i've started to see uh, over the last couple of years is is a lot more of consolidation of tools you know there's a lot of organizations that are buying up making acquisitions of smaller tools to merge in and, and to pull it into their their own platform because they see value in this all uh, you know this one stop shop they want to be the enablement tool with with everything um in in there rather than organizations having you know 15 different tools they can just have a handful of tools and you know i think there's some value in that i think um it can be quite frustrating at times you know because mm -hmm. you know people are trying to create these platforms um that are just have multiple different tools within the same within the same platform and i think it depends on the tool because sometimes well, very rarely, actually, I, I, I would I would say that there's a platform that does everything really well. Usually they'll do some things really well and you'll love it. But then there's one element of it they do really badly. And you but then it becomes more difficult because you think I'd really love to replace that one part and, and get another tool to come in and do that. But because you've invested in this one tool and you've actually got this tool as part of the platform to then say you're going to switch that plug in off and actually buy it in again through another um through through another provider it, it's mm -hmm. difficult to then justify the cost of it 
Yeah, but indeed. I think, but I think, yeah, I think a lot of it's going to move in, move towards these more consolidated platforms. Mm -hmm. And um, from all your past experiences, um, if you're talking about the cost, like what what would a scale up like a company that's currently growing? What do you think is like enablement tools? Like what what budget is on that? Like I can't I can't even think of a figure, but I know some tools specifically and their price tag uh, it goes into the hundreds or thousands of euros or pounds sometimes that goes into enablement it's insane like what what do you think is the cost per hat to call it like that yeah i it's this is a very <laughs> difficult question i mean but you, you're, you're talking hundreds per month Per, per user per month per user um you know and it could it i mean it could you can easily be talking you know 500 500 euros per user per month you mm -hmm. know if you're if you're not careful but it's, it's being um it's just being smart about it right because no one's gonna complain at spending 500 euros per user per month True. on various different tools if it's generating if it's generating yeah. the right return um, but the problem with having too many tools is you've got to manage it and you've got to be able to assess what value these tools are, are providing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about prioritizing what's right for you at the time and building it up slowly uh, and putting in place, you know, a, a few tools and, and working with them, seeing what value you get rather than before you know it, you can get overwhelmed. Um, overwhelmed especially if you see the price tag at the end of the month and like whoa <laughs> yeah exactly and and it's, it is it's a scary thing when you when you start to add thing add things up you know you bring in a new tool and you think oh yeah it's only going to cost uh it's only going to cost 80 80 euros per user per month and you think that's yeah that's not that's not that's not a lot but then when you look at it and you think yeah but i've already spending the x amount per user per month. this this bumps it up even even more um mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i don't in terms of budget what should people budget i i don't think it's a question it gives that, an idea it gives a good idea <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's crazy it is crazy but you've just got to make sure you've got the right the right tools in place mm -hmm. um because otherwise you just end up spending a shed load of money on tools that just people don't use and salespeople are fickle right they if they won't use a tool if it's not giving them value um and if you've chosen the wrong tool and it's not providing the value and you've signed up um For to years. a new tool and you, you know a year if you're lucky right but yeah every single SaaS provider is going to try when it gets to that fight that negotiation stage they're all going to say to you give me a three-year contract and i'm going to bring the price down for you and that's the tempting point because there'll be mm -hmm. significant discounts often to get that three-year, that three-year deal, which is great if it's the right if it's the right tool. But if it's the wrong tool and you then stuck with it for three years and nobody wants to use it because it's just not working or giving them the value, um, then that budget you're talking about can be significantly dwindled because you're paying for a tool that people just don't don't want. Yeah, indeed, and. I think when, when I hear like three-year contract, the only thing I can think of is that the return on investment of some of the tools is just not within the first month. There's always a ramp up time with, with new tools and, and technology. And you know, it's difficult to understand at what point you're going to start to see, mm -hmm. um, start to see the value in it. You know, we've, we've been looking at some cool recording technology 
and um, yeah, it, it sounds sounds all fantastic. I, I don't I don't I don't know when we're going to really start to see true mm-hmm. value. We'll get value from it because we can start looking. You know, we can we we record calls and oh, excuse me, no worries. Um, yeah, we record calls and um, we can instantly make them available and to everybody and we can highlight best practice if somebody does something well like mm-hmm. what we were talking about before we can share it with the rest of the team we can get instant value from that but you know it, there's a lot more to look at in terms of what value you're going to get that return on investment and when that's actually going to uh, going to happen true true well it has been um it has been a super interesting conversation i could talk about tool stacks for, for another <laughs> hour i think but um to wrap things up, I have one more question, uh, and that is, if I could give you a billboard on the M1 to London, I, I'm not sure if the M1 goes to London, but uh, <laughs> from what it I does indeed, it does, yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, if I if I could give you a billboard right there, what would you put on it, and why? Oh, what would I put on it? Yeah, it doesn't have to be sales related. It can be like a life quote or whatever. Um, I would say, if you always do what you've always done in the way you've always done it, you'll only get what you've always got. That's deep. <laughs> I don't think it needs explanation as well. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite clear. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice one. Where, where did you get that one? It kind of evolved, I think, um, from, you know, different things that I'd, that I'd heard, you know, it, it, it all comes down to. I think it was it was a, a point that I got to in my career where I just found that I was um, I was bored or I, w- I was frustrated that I was you know that I'd hit a bit of a plateau and I wasn't able to get beyond that and I had this mentality that yeah you know, I was doing well um, I, I was I was being successful in what I was doing but I hit that plateau and I couldn't get any any further uh, but my mindset was that I knew the recipe I knew the, I knew what I needed to do I knew the formula. And I just had to keep on doing it and doing it again mm. and again and again, because I know this formula works. I know this recipe works. Uh, and I couldn't understand why I wasn't being able to get beyond that plateau. And it was a point when somebody said, well, if, you've, if you're not getting beyond that plateau, doing what you've always done that you know has been successful, you're going to have to do something different, because if you're not going to do something different, you're never going to get anything out that's different. Um, and yeah. it just dawned on me. And I was like, yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, if I want to get more than I've always got, I've got to do more than I've always got. And it doesn't necessarily mean I've got to I've got to do actually physically do it more times. Sometimes you've just got to do it a little bit differently, uh, but you've got to change something. And if you don't change something, then you can't expect that the results are going to change. Yeah, and it's it's actually it's it's applies super well to all the things we've talked about. Because that is ultimately what sales enablement is about. Yeah. To make sure that you keep improving and don't fall into the trap of doing something as you used to do it. Yeah, absolutely that. 